Oliver Wendell Holmes said, one's mind, once stretched by a new experience, can never go back to its old dimensions. In this podcast, we are proud to present our guests, the world leaders and pioneers in the fields of neurointerventional surgery, interventional radiology, and endovascular neurosurgery. We will bring you through their personal journey and the three cases that have marked their professional career. From the very first to the very last case, passing by the most enriching and challenging. Welcome to this original format by Link Online, my first, my last, my everything. Hi everyone, my name is Nantia Suchi-Jantararat and today I have the pleasure of welcoming our guest, Dr. Jay Mako from Mount Sinai. Dr. Jay Mako, thank you for joining me today. Hello, thank you for having me. Undoubtedly, you're on this podcast because all of us have identified you as one of the leaders in neurointervention. But for those who may not be familiar with you, could you tell us a little bit about who you are and what your background is leading up to this point in your career? Well, I hope you have a very long time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, briefly, I'm a neurosurgeon, neurointerventionalist. I did my medical school neurosurgical training at Columbia. While I did my neurosurgical training, I also got a master's in biostatistics uh, for clinical research. I went up to do a neuroendovascular fellowship with Nick Hopkins at University of Buffalo, which was a wonderful transformative experience, despite the weather. And uh, and from there, I've had what I think is an incredibly lucky and blessed career where I've gotten to be part of one of the most exciting fields in medicine and helped usher in so many changes and so many neat things, aside from the individual cases where you just, you know, you walk out of the room and you feel like you did something good for someone, or the clinic visits where they get up and give you a hug. That's that's pretty rewarding as well. Can you tell me a little bit about what your practice is like now? I practice in New York City, so it's a very major urban center. Uh, one of the things that we've done that's a little bit different, I think, than many places is traditionally the Mount Sinai Hospital is a you know quaternary care center on the Upper East Side of New York City. Uh, it's a very large hospital, but we've merged with a large number of other centers, right? So we have eight other hospitals in the region. And rather than creating a sort of hub and spoke model where there's a mothership or the big house or or something like that, and the other places get a different level of care or get transferred in for complex things, um, we've tried to create centers of excellence around all of the centers. So for instance, we will specifically treat aneurysms, AVMs, lesional bleeds at the Mount Sinai Hospital. Um, But we specialize in intracerebral hemorrhage, spontaneous intracerebral hemorrhage at Mount Sinai West. So if that patient shows up at Mount Sinai Hospital, they go to West. We create centers of excellence, right? We have a center of of excellence for neurodimensional spine. We have a center of excellence for ENT support and intervention. And so as we do that, that allows us to create a high level of expertise of the care we're giving at each of those places, as well as to provide the real burdensome care for everyone, which is thrombectomy, right? So you, the time-sensitive care that you want to get patients to have access to right away, we project that out. So that if a patient shows up at one of our outside hospitals, uh, they don't have to get repackaged up in an ambulance and come to us, but we as the physicians go to them. So long-winded way to explain my typical experience, which is that I work at numerous hospitals as a result. That might sound a little odd, but when you treat your entire system as one big building, it's just like I'm going to a different wing of the same building. We think it ends up providing some good care. And we've published in the literature, in the journal Stroke and JNIS, the benefits in clinical outcomes for stroke therapies and other things by doing it. So that's a bit of the way that at least my clinical life works. Otherwise, in between all of that, I plan a lot of meetings, do a lot of research, uh, write a lot of papers. 
Let's shift gear a little bit. You talked about your pivotal experience at Buffalo. Could you tell me whose career inspires you and why? Who is your mentor? That's a fantastic question. I think in life, you typically find a few people that inspire you or drive you. For me, from a professional standpoint, uh, really two individuals stand out. A gentleman by the name of Sander Connolly, who's a, a traditional open vascular neurosurgeon at Columbia, is currently the chair of neurosurgery at Columbia University. Uh, and a guy by the name of Nick Hopkins, um, who in the neurointerventional space is kind of doesn't need introduction, but is a very early adopter for endovascular techniques and really has been a pioneer in the space. Different reasons for each of theirs influence on me and inspiration. But one thing holds true through both of them. Every day, they approach the day as if there was something new to learn. There's another new way to look at things. They were very unconventional thinkers. That, to me, has been maybe the most inspiring part of my career, and I think has put me in the position to be able to have the fortunate successes that I've had. Being willing to look at the world a little differently than everyone else, be a little open-minded about trying to do things differently. I think that rings true for a successful career. And and I definitely took that from both of them, as well as a myriad of little practical things and advices, ways to approach things, ways to work with others, uh, all very valuable. But if I was going to say there's a, a singular kernel, I would say keeping an open mind and uh, and really not getting caught in the trap of immediately defaulting to the logic of everyone else, but really looking at things and, and trying to be critical and, and evidence-based and open-minded. You have been credited as being one of the people that brought aspiration to the forefront of stroke care. Can you tell me about how that came about and that process? I got a phone call. <laughs> one of the things I advise my residents is, is uh, it's, medicine's a small field. Have friends, listen to your friends, partner with your friends, work with your friends. I got called by a friend of mine, a guy by the name of Quill Turk. He's a, a pretty well-known neurointerventionalist. Uh, he's been very influential in the space. He called me up and he told me, this was right after stent retrievers became common. We already had the old penumbra system, penumbra catheters that you would use, the separator to try to break up the clot. And, and the concept of solumbra had come out, right? Use a solitaire with a penumbra catheter or a trevo with a, some other distal access catheter. And he told me a case where he went up, he went to deploy the stent retriever, but for some reason it wasn't ready, so he had to get it ready. And when he went to put it up, he couldn't get any back bleeding on the aspiration catheter. So he just left it on aspiration and decided to pull it out to clear it to go back up. But when he pulled it out, the clot was on the end of the catheter, just stuck. And he did a run and the patient was completely reperfused. So I started trying that first and it works amazingly well. And I said, I mean, I guess, I don't know. I, if, I'll give it a shot if you want. Uh, and I remember telling my fellow, hey, next time we have a stroke, let's try this. Mm -hmm. And he's like, that's a dumb idea. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I know, but Quill's a smart guy, so let's, let's give it a shot. And so that's what we did. And it worked. I mean, it worked. It was amazing. And mm -hmm. back then, when the catheters were smaller, you'd have the clot stuck on the edge of the catheter. It'd be like kind of lodged on there. You know, it's also when everyone's getting iPhones. So we started taking pictures and sending, you know, it was like fishing pictures to show mm -hmm. that we caught them. And that was really exciting. But that by itself wouldn't be enough, right? So then we're doing that. We're seeing that it works. We're telling people. But you need the evidence. You need the proof. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's one of the things I'm good at 
is I'm a little bit of a you know nerd. I like science. I like math. I like those things to make sense. And so I partnered with Quill and with Adnan Siddiqui, another great, great friend of mine. And we raised the funds, uh, supported by Promember, but completely independently run by us. They had nothing to do with the trial. And we ran the Compass trial, a prospective randomized trial, completely blindly adjudicated, balanced enrollment of centers that preferred stamp retrievers versus aspiration. And we showed unequivocally that aspiration is non-inferior. And frankly, when you look at the secondary outcomes, in my opinion, it's, it's pretty clearly uh, tends towards superior with about 11 minutes faster times on average with higher rates of Tiki 3 and other benefits. So for me, that has been a really satisfying experience. And, you know, it, it's interesting, though. It's another thing about looking into the data, right? So when, you, when we did that work, one of the things that was discussed was, should we force it to be just a stent retriever versus just aspiration, uh, which I didn't think was pragmatic. We didn't think was pragmatic. And so the stent retriever arm is actually... Salumber, 90-something percent of the cases, 96% were, you know, as people call belts and suspenders, a stent and an aspiration catheter. Yet still, you had the performance of aspiration alone being non-inferior, slightly numerically better, and with, with better secondary outcomes, as well as much lower cost. So when you take the time to design a trial that's real rigorous like that, I think it gives you the opportunity to influence people. And that's a testament to our field. There were a lot of people that thought, Maybe we were biased. Maybe we were making up the results a little bit. When you provided the data, though, everyone said, yeah, that I get it. That makes sense. It's pretty cool. There are a lot of people in our current cultures and society around the world where even when presented with clear data, they don't necessarily believe the data. Not so in our field. We're still science-based. And that's, <laughs> maybe it's a sad statement on society, but it's encouraging that we still have that in the field of Neurodimension. We're uh, we're aspiration first as well as an institution. <laughs> you guys do so for M2s, like whatever. Like Absolutely. Stuff as well. Absolutely. In fact, in in my opinion, the aspiration is even better for the distal lesions. You get a very tight fit to the vessel, and it's atraumatic. I get nervous when I and I I will do it occasionally, but I get nervous when I have to put a stent retriever to a distal vessel. Uh, it holds on to it. It pulls a bit. I definitely believe in there's literature support. There's more subarachnoid hemorrhage, not, not devastating, but moderate to mild subarachnoid hemorrhage in that patient population. Uh, when you go out with 32, 35 type aspiration catheter, a 45 type aspiration catheter out into the distal vessels, you can go incredibly far out there. As long as it goes easy, there's no problem. And it is quite successful at pulling the clot out. Can you talk about Synchron? I know you guys are doing pretty cool cases out there. Absolutely. This is another one of those just exciting things about our field. Uh, I have the incredible good fortune to be the CMO of a startup technology company. So I have a financial bias there. But the CEO is one of my partners, a gentleman I trained, Tom Oxley, who we subsequently hired. And he does uh, Sumner Intervention, but also does this company. And the idea is the blood vessels bring us right to the brain without having to do a craniotomy, without having to cut open the skin, without having to take infection risk. We can immediately get adjacent to the brain and we can do things besides block off aneurysms or pull out clots. In particular, we can place electrodes that can read and potentially influence the electrical activity of the brain. If you ever watch a video of a surgery on an aneurysm or a case where there's previously been a stent, or if you've ever done one of those surgeries, which I have, you often see the stent in the wall of 
the vessel from the outside. So you've opened up. The stent grows into the wall, right? It gets endothelialized. It ends up in the outer layers of the vessel, immediately adjacent to the brain. If you think of the level of contact and integrity of signal capture that you can get with a stent in, or electrodes in that position versus laying them on the scalp or even under the scalp of the bone or even extradural or even subdural, right? You still, the layer at which they lay on the brain can be affected. And so Tom had this wonderful idea and started this company and I was able to get involved of going transvascular. And at this point, we're putting a stent-based electrode into the sagittal sinus, immediately adjacent to the motor and premotor cortices. So then you can use electrocorticography read the electrical activity of the brain. The wire from that electrode goes down to a little subclavicular pocket with a transmitter. The skin doesn't have to be violated, right? You don't have some big block sticking out of the patient's head. You don't have wires going directly into the brain, which for all the work that's been done in that direction currently experiences gliosis. So the signal integrity goes down over time when you directly poke into the brain. However, when you put it in the blood vessel, you don't generate any gliosis. So actually signal integrity gets better while, the, while it gets incorporated into the vessel. And then we have data out a full year of high quality signal integrity. So now that person can think of something, right? Pressing down their big toe, uh, clenching their hamstring, any number of other movements of thought. They, they think I'm gonna move my leg. Now they may be paralyzed, they can't move their leg. But when they think of that movement, the stent electrode can read the changes in the electrocorticography. And therefore, with some practice and some AI algorithm, although with the last three patients, every single patient after one session was able to use the device independently, successfully, you put a little uh, receiver that magnetically clips onto the, like sort of just lays over the skin from the one that's in the pouch. And that can send a signal through Bluetooth to your laptop, to the lights in your house, to your garage door opener, whatever it is that you want to affect and make move. It's pretty darn amazing. And it's, it's wild because you don't need that much information to have a dramatic effect on people's lives. If you think about it, with just a few clicks, signals, buttons you can press, you can interact in our digital world with so many things and drive so many things. If you think about a remote control for a video game console, right? You have like an X and an O and a triangle and a square, four buttons. We learn, depending on what video game you're playing, that each one of those buttons can do different things. Jump, run, shoot phasers or whatever, whatever the <laughs> game is you're playing, right? So this allows you to do the same thing. You can have three or four or six buttons. And as you think through those buttons, those clicks, you can engage with your computer or whatever other electronic equipment that you're engaging with uh, at a very complex level with relatively simple outputs. And so we've done four cases in Australia. Dr. Peter Mitchell was the neurointerventionalist there and Bruce Campbell, uh, a very well-known stroke neurologist who ran the uh, EXTEND trials, uh, was a PI. And this upcoming month, we're going to be doing the first U.S. case in New York City at Mount Sinai. So I think there's a really bright future for brain-computer interface from a transvascular approach. I think we're going to see a whole new world. And that's just, right now I've only talked about paralysis, but you know, seizures and any number of other disorders where being able to read and engage with the brain's electrical activity will facilitate really powerful therapies for patients.
And now we will go through the three questions about your cases that we ask every guest. Okay, are you ready? Mm-hmm. All right. Let's start with your first case. Could you tell me about the first case or one of the first cases you remember that marked the beginning of your career? Well, uh, my first case may not translate well for the neurodimensional audience, but I think they'll get the concept. I feel like I've been blessed to have a pretty amazing career where I've got to do neat things. But all things start not necessarily with a bang. In my very first case was a nerve biopsy, a sural nerve biopsy, which is a very not glamorous procedure <laughs> um, that often falls to the newest faculty member in a department of neurosurgery. Uh, and so you make a little you know, one centimeter incision down in the lower leg and take out a piece of nerve to see if a patient has a neurologic disorder. I always kind of thought it was funny that that was my first <laughs> surgery I ever did as an independent attending. It's actually kind of hard to tell between the nerve and the vein sometimes when you get down there because you think it'll just be blue and easy, but it's, it never is. So, All right, great. Now let's continue with the most interesting, memorable, or challenging case that you have. Do you have something in mind? There are so many, so many cases that change you, right? Change the way you think about things. Um, I think that I would say that the cases that have impacted me the most directly changing my life have been the complications. They can be hard. They can make life pretty tough. But, you know, it doesn't, thankfully, major complications don't happen often. But when they do, you know, you have trouble sleeping. And who feels bad for you? You're the person who had the complication, the poor patient and their family, you know. But, but I remember early on, I had a case that taught me a lot. It was a middle-aged gentleman who had a dural arteriovenous fistula uh, with a very small perforating vessel off of the vertebral artery. Uh, that I was able to navigate out pretty well. I got a good three, four centimeters distal from the vertebral artery I thought would be very safe. I magged up on the catheter tip and the fistula, and I did a glue injection in a way that I really thought was pretty awesome. I remember finishing the case and thinking that it looked fantastic. And then I magged out and did a low mag view, and glue had showered the whole posterior fossa. Uh, and I went through a long period of trying to open everything up and save it and... Obviously, there were several strokes and decompressions. It was a horrible, horrible case. Um, I hadn't done that kind of case before. I, I mean, I had done those kinds of cases, but I hadn't done one with that vessel so small in a way. When you put a microcatheter in a really small vessel off of a, of a big pipe of an artery, a carotid or a vert, the embolate can come back and you can't even see it. And then it can shower you know, off of the out. But when it hits the big vessel it immediately gets diluted so you don't even appreciate it. That's that sort of complication I hadn't seen ever before. It was a tremendous learning experience for me for that specific case. I remember there's a meeting every year at Jackson Hole in the summer called the Supervisor Complications Conference. I highly recommend it to anyone because there's this is what gets shown, really tough complications. It's so amazing to learn from those from others' complications. And in fact, I I that is where I met Quill Turk, the gentleman I told you about that I did the compass trial with, was discussing this kind of a... Someone else presented the exact same complication uh, that year, essentially. You know, slight differences, but functionally the same. And we were on the panel together, and he turned over and whispered to me, and then afterwards we talked more about it. And so that that case stands out. One, you learn from, from those really challenging complications. It's so funny, just at C3, just three, two years, right before COVID, there was a someone else presented because like it still happens but I would say that it's rare there's the interventionalist who doesn't when they're asked about their most impactful cases 
think back to those complications because they really uh, they drive you and uh, hopefully help you be a better surgeon in the future. What would you do differently in that case? Uh, I would coil embolize the vessel. Uh, I think if you're in a if you're in a vessel that's literally the size of your catheter, so that what happens is the the embolate doesn't develop any volume as it's tracking back such that you can observe it. The case that was presented at C3, it might even have been last year, I think we had it for the first time after COVID this past year, was by a very senior, we all signed NDA, so I can't say, but a very senior, very well-respected, very well-known neurodimensionalist that every listener would know. Uh, and it was off the carotid artery, but it was the exact same thing. He said there's no reflux. There was no, I was watching, you never saw it. But sure enough, you know, they had a pretty devastating complication. And so I think when I'm in that small of a vessel off of some major trunk going to others, then I put coils into the into the vessel. You're not going to perfuse the fistulous pouch itself, but you'll shut down the flow enough. What I often find is those circumstances, you can then come transvenous and take care of the rest of the fistula pretty easily. And worst case, default to a craniotomy if you need to. But you can almost always, once you've taken down the main arterial feeders, go transvenous and shut those guys down without any trouble. And now the final case. Could you walk us through the most recent case you did or just a representative case of something that you guys do very often? Well, obviously we do a fair amount of stroke and thrombectomy intervention. I like that space because there's so much we can do. The power of the therapy is is so evident, right? It's the lowest number needed to treat of almost anything in medicine. And so I like the innovations that we're continuing to have. We've become we've started using large bore aspiration catheters to be able to bring an 88 catheter intracranially uh, to facilitate removal of the clot. To me, has been really transformative. So that's been an extremely exciting transformation. Um, we've also worked on our systems. We have a we have two now in our system, combined biplanes and CT scanners uh, with one table. So the patient can get put on this one table, one bed transfer off of the EMS stretcher and get their CAT scan and CTA. And if it's positive, you just flip the table 180 degrees and do the intervention immediately, dropping your door to needle times from 50 minutes to 15 minutes. That's exciting. I, I think the ability to sort of keep driving in those directions. There's so much we can do. I mean, I haven't even, we're in an interventional call, but intracerebral hemorrhage and performing endoscopic intracerebral hemorrhage evacuation has been incredibly satisfying and, and we've been able to sort of really describe a technique and put a lot of literature out there that shows that it appears to be successful and now we're waiting for those definitive trials to find out. Finally, I'd like to conclude by asking, what do you want to leave as your legacy in the field? <laughs> That's like sort of asking, what do you want written on your gravestone? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and I think it's a it's an incredibly difficult question uh, to answer. I, I would say there are two things that I think are most important. I mean, obviously, I'm very happy about the care I've given my specific patients. That's that's more of a personal thing. I don't think that's that that's not the legacy uh, component. But on, from a point of legacy, I think there are two things that have mattered a lot to me in the space. And if you look at the myriad of things I've done, they they run through the heart of both of them. And that is uh, number one, generating evidence, making a difference. So. You know, no matter how many patients I treat directly, if I can do meaningful science and communicate that science effectively to the community, I can move the needle. 
I can influence so many more lives. I hope when I'm done, people will say, that guy cared about making it a little better and, and advancing the field rather than just advancing uh, his, you know, himself. And, uh, and sort of tied to that is also building bridges in the field. Uh, I've spent, you know, it's not the kind of thing that you, you write papers much about or you get a, you know, you put lines on your CV about, but I'm really proud of the relationships that I've been able to experience in this field. You know, when I trained and came out, there was outright antagonism between a lot of radiology and neurosurgery. Certainly in the U.S., that is gone. It doesn't exist. Uh, we're extremely collaborative. We have rich robust relationships across the fields. And likewise with neurology and neurology interventionalists. I now am able to count Tudor and Raul and, and all these wonderful people as, as friends. And I think if you start with trust and personal friendship, then you can start to lay a broader foundation to drive the field forward more. So we're not wasting our energies on antagonism, but instead we're sort of all rowing in the same direction to improve patient care. So. Those are the two things that I'm, at least personally, the most proud of in, in my career to date. Dr. Malko, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a lot of fun, a little embarrassing, uh, <laughs> but I really appreciate you giving me a chance to talk. Thank you. Thank you.